We will be in 1 Timothy 3 again this evening. And particularly we'll be picking it up in verse 8. Although, we'll see how far we get. But uh, the goal is to get all the way through verse 13. And then to circle back next week and particularly visit the impact that these two roles, office uh, overseer uh, and deacon, will have on the church. But um, once you are there in First Timothy, let me just open us in a word of prayer, and then we will get started. Father, we thank you for our time to gather together over your word, uh, that we can uh, study it, apply our minds, and ultimately our hearts, uh, so that we might know you better, so we might serve you better, uh, so we might love you better, and love one another better. We pray this in your name. Amen. So, First uh, Timothy chapter 3, the, this week I'll be reading out of the ESV translation. And uh, if you're following along in a different translation, you might notice some differences. And those are the ones you'll want to pay attention to, because that's likely going to be indicating you, or telling you uh, what are questions as we translate these verses. So, verse 8, I'll begin reading there. Deacons, likewise, must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain, they must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. And let them also be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves, and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. So these verses lay out the qualifications, in this case, for deacons. Um, And as I read through, uh, it might have stood out to you, uh, particularly in verse 11, the rendering of the term wives. Now, depending on the translation you have in front of you, that might also just say the woman likewise. And uh, we'll talk about that when we get there. But we want to first establish a a brief flow of thought from 1 Timothy 3, just to remind ourselves where we've been so that we don't just pick this thing up uh, in the middle of a chapter. Uh, So far in 1 Timothy 3, Paul has been arguing that uh, the church has to have a certain structure in order to function. So he's given Timothy first in chapter 1 the guardianship of uh, guarding the doctrine of the church, guarding the teaching of the church, keeping false teaching away, ultimately culminating with Timothy being responsible for rejecting certain false teachers by name. In chapter 2, he guards the worship of the church, uh, telling men how they ought to conduct themselves in worship, turning to women, telling them how they ought to conduct themselves in worship, what roles are appropriate in either case, um, and what is the specific sins that might be in view that you need to keep in mind as either a male or a female as you approach God in worship. And then in chapter 3, he begins to get a little bit more, let's say, structurally minded, and he names first the office of an overseer. And two weeks ago when we talked about that, we mentioned... Overseer uh, is, is not in this text the same thing as elder, but in other places in Scripture, like 1 Peter, we see that overseer and elder actually map onto each other as interchangeable terms. Uh, and ultimately, that term has an overlap with the term pastor as well, so that an overseer, an elder, and a pastor, all those things that we would use today should really be used interchangeably in the Western church because in the New Testament, they're also used interchangeably. So if, if one is an overseer, uh, that is the same as an elder, which is the same as a pastor. Uh, Some translations, by the way, for overseer might render that as a bishop. It's kind of that same, that word is episkopos, one who's a bishop over over a church. 
And we talked two weeks ago and last week about the, the qualifications for an overseer. And you'll notice in those, that list of qualifications, it's a long list, but ultimately it has in view someone who's respectable, someone who's outstanding in terms of maturity of faith, and one who is able to teach within the body that they minister in. And the, the proving grounds for whether someone is all these things ultimately is the family. If someone fails in terms of serving their family well, you can be assured that if they're not responsible in this small sphere of authority, they won't be able to be responsible in a larger sphere of authority. And then in verse 8, he turns to deacons. And now he's going to give a list of qualifications for them. You'll notice the deacons list is much shorter than the list for the overseers. And you also might notice in the middle of the deacons list, he pops out and introduces this third category of person, their wives or the women. And so in the flow of thought, we're trying to understand the structure that Paul is building the church on as he's trying to tell Timothy what his job description is. So this week we'll be trying to understand the anatomy of a deacon. What is a deacon responsible for? And ultimately, uh, we'll get to the question, what, does that mean women can serve in this role or not? And particularly looking at verse 11 there. So firstly, let's, let's look at what a deacon must be. Uh, the transition word likewise, deacons, uh, is kind of the clue that we're introducing now a second office, different and distinct from the elder, the overseer, um, and also an office that's related in terms of service in the church. Okay? And so this office comes with a certain set of roles. In the ESV, it renders the translation, they must be dignified. Whoever, uh, whoever pursues this role must be dignified. That is pretty well in line with the idea of being respectable or above reproach that an elder is, is called to do. Uh, they must be people who have a good standing. You wouldn't appoint someone to an office in the church if they don't have a good reputation within that church for faithful service and stewardship of, of their responsibilities. So a deacon must be responsible. They must be uh, respectable, dignified. And they must also not be double-tongued. Or uh, we might say they, they, they need to be a sincere person, the kind of person who they, they tell you they're, they're going to do something, they're going to follow up and do it. Uh, they're, they're the kind of person who you can trust or rely on to, to follow up on things. Uh, a deacon must also not be addicted to much wine, uh, which is very similar to the command for elders. They must not be uh, drunks. They must not be, be given uh, to drunkenness. And here, for the deacon, they must not be addicted to or slaves to wine. And also, just like in the case of the elder, the deacon must not be greedy for dishonest gain. Uh, remember, in the... In the requirements for the elder, uh, you'll, if you look at verse 3 of chapter 3, uh, they must not be a drunkard, they must not be violent but gentle, they must not be quarrelsome, and they must not be a lover of money. Now we can, we can try to understand what a deacon is responsible for by trying to understand how their qualifications differ from the qualifications for an elder. The deacon can't be greedy, the elder can't be greedy, the deacon can't be a slave to wine. The elder can't be a slave to wine. The deacon must be respectable. The elder must be respectable. But notice what the list for the deacons lacks that the elder list requires. The elder list requires aptness or ability to teach. And also, the elder requirements uh, puts in mind someone who's not violent but gentle and not quarrelsome, which the deacon list lacks. And we might just observe that that might indicate to us that the role and responsibility of an elder might be given more to quarreling and being, uh, let's say, a, a harsh ruler in a different way than the office of a deacon might be. A deacon is a, a role of a servant, someone who serves Christ's body. And so the temptation towards being uh, quarrelsome 
is not going to be the same among one who serves in the body of Christ as it might be among one who is responsible for the theological instruction of the body of Christ. Hence why there's probably a list of differences there. Um, also, the deacons aren't required to be able to teach, but you'll notice in verse 9, they must hold to the mystery of faith with a clear conscience. So the elder obviously has to be responsible for the faith, uh, holding, holding fast to the teaching that they've been given. Uh, but the elder must be able to teach in a way the deacon uh, is not responsible to. Uh, but what this doesn't mean is that you can appoint anyone to the office of deacon uh, regardless of their theological, uh, their theological ability. A deacon must be theologically robust. A deacon must be someone who knows the faith, who holds fast to the faith, and who can explain the faith. That is not the same thing as a gifting to teach. To give you a snapshot of this, if you'll turn with me to Acts chapter 7, uh, we have an example of someone who served in the office of deacon in the early church. And although the term is not used in Acts chapter 6, uh, when, when these men are appointed, there are seven who are appointed to delegate a certain kind of authority, the serving of widows in the church. That's the authority they're given. Uh, and that is so the elders and uh, the apostles can focus on the teaching and, and the prayer. But those people, uh, uh, one of them is Stephen. Uh, he, he's appointed uh, in the previous chapter in the role of a deacon. And in chapter 7, we have uh, this long discourse between C Stephen and those who are going to kill him. And I would actually say Stephen uh, here gives us what I would call a model sermon. Uh, a sermon that uh, he, he captures the redemptive historical arc of the Jewish people. Uh, he highlights the fact that they fall short, that God is faithful, and ultimately culminates with, and therefore Christ is the means by which we are saved. So Stephen, in Acts chapter 7, you can, as you're just looking across the chapter, just observe the fact that he knows his Bible, he knows theology, he can defend theology, and yet he serves in the early church more like the office of a deacon than in the office of an elder or a pastor. So I'm just showing you that to show you that when, when Paul doesn't list able to teach in the, in the list of deacons, that does not mean theological knowledge is out the window or a non-starter. They must hold fast to the faith, the mystery of faith, which they have been delivered, and they must do so with a clear conscience. I think Stephen does that well, ultimately going to his death for the testimony that he provides here. So Stephen uh, delivers for us what we'd say a model sermon, a model defense of the faith. And he, and he is, uh, we would say, a lowly deacon in the early church, right? So I think that should give us a clue, particularly as we turn to the 21st century world, with how we ought to evaluate one who would be considered for the office of deacon. The qualification is not just willingness to serve. Ultimately, the qualification is willingness to serve and the qualifications met to serve. You can't just appoint someone to the office of deacon because you need an extra set of hands to do things around the church. You need someone who actually meets these requirements. Just like we talked with an elder, you don't just pick someone who's charismatic and who seems like they're a good orator. You pick someone who's reliable, trustworthy, and ultimately who will defend the church against false teaching. They will defend the church against the wolves who will try to assault the church. So this is what a deacon is. They're a theologically founded person who serves the body, not primarily by teaching, but primarily by ministering with, with their hands as a servant. Um, and yet, that does not mean they are, uh, they're not theologically able. Uh, they're, they're theologically very sound, very rooted, very grounded. Because ultimately, to serve the body faithfully by your hands and, and by service, you actually need a theological foundation to do that. 
lest, like many churches, uh, especially in the Protestant tradition today, have, have moved into almost like a social gospel view of what the church is like, uh, in which case those who served were not theologically grounded in their serving, and they began to think this is what the gospel is. It is to bring uh, food to the poor, and it, do, it does not have anything to do with Jesus and the forgiveness of sins or anything like that. And ultimately, that's the, that's the servants of the church uh, not being theologically grounded and then being deceived into thinking this is a good thing, let's make it the ultimate thing. And would that we had servants in the church who actually knew their Bibles well, knew theology well, who would not be prone towards that kind of temptation to serve faithfully, but in its proper place, that serving is not the thrust of the church in the way that the preaching of the gospel is. So a deacon has to meet all these requirements. And much like an elder in verse 10, the deacon must also be tested prior to being appointed. So in verse 10, they must be tested first, and then if they are approved, they can serve as deacons. And so uh, just like an elder, the elder, they can't be a new convert or they can't be a novice to the faith. The deacon, likewise, they have to go through some period of testing before you would appoint them to this office. You don't just pick someone who's willing and put them in this position. Now, uh, before we move on to verse 11, uh, you can just glance there, the, the term, their wives or the women, likewise. That's going to begin to clue us into a, a difficulty in interpretation of the text. And I've been putting off the difficulty of interpretation for the, the word in verse 8, deacon, until now as well, because I want to kind of just do it all in one go. Okay? So the term deacon uh, is sometimes in the scripture used in a technical sense, and sometimes it's used in what we would call a non-technical sense. And you might recall several weeks ago when we were talking about, uh, well, in 1 Timothy 2, verse 12, where Paul says, I do not permit a woman to teach. We said, well, in the church, women can teach in some capacities, but not in others. And I, I think I said the phrase, so there's, there's teaching and then there's teaching. I tried to parse this distinction between the two different kinds of teaching and how in sometimes Paul is referring to teaching more like what we would call preaching, probably what he says women are not allowed to do. And sometimes teaching is more like discipleship engagement, in which case women are totally called to do that in the church. And similarly here, uh, there's deacons in the church and there's deacons in the church. And uh, you all are deacons in the church in some sense because we're all to be ministers of Christ to one another. That's what the term deacon means, to serve or to minister. But sometimes it's used in a more technical, a more narrow sense, like the office of a deacon. So just to give you a quick survey, I didn't want to reduplicate any work. Uh, and this uh, commentary that I read had a chart in it. So um, I'll just give you a quick sampling. You can jot these down. I'll, I'll read the cross-references, but you just, I just want you to hear this. So Romans 13, Paul writes about the governing authorities, and he says, For the one in authority is God's servant for your good, or deacon for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For rulers do not bear their sword for no reason. They are God's servants, agents of wrath, to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. So if we take the term deacon every time that it's used in the sense that it must be a technical office, uh, we should have a politician or a governor or the governor of Indiana serving in the church in some way. But we don't take it in that technical sense. We say that this is a generic term being used of one who ministers or serves God's people. In this case, uh, as the legal arm to support the church and defend her freedoms. In Romans 15, similarly, uh, Christ has become a deacon of the Jews on behalf of God's truth, or he's become a servant of the truth, uh, a servant of the Jews on behalf of God's truth. Uh, we would not say Christ served in the office of a deacon. We're talking about his role as a servant to the people. Romans 16, Phoebe 
is listed at the end, uh, at the beginning of chapter 16, and Paul says, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a deacon of the church in Sancria, or a servant or minister of the church in Sancria. It's unclear. Again, we're trying to use context clues to determine what's going on. You can see already the term has flexibility in terms of how you render it, how you translate it. And that's why there's debate uh, all over the text about what these words mean. Um, I'll skip to one that I think is, is worth noting, uh, just because it's where we see overseers and deacons map together. And that's in Philippians chapter 1, verse 1, where we read that Paul and Timothy write, and they, say, they introduce themselves as servants of Christ Jesus to all of the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, with also the overseers and the deacons. So they address the saints present in the church, the overseers and the deacons. Um, but in Paul's letters, he also, when he talks to the saints, he says, you are to be ministers to one another. So he's not always using the term in a technical sense. Sometimes he uses it in a more generic kind of way. So just that brief survey of four verses, and there's, I think, a total of 16 on this chart. But just that brief survey should give you a clue. Uh, the term is up to a translator to try to figure out what is going on. And if your, so if your Bible translation says at, at the beginning of verse 8, ministers or servants must be this, now you know why, right? It's, it's one term, and they're, they're trying to wrestle with how do you render it. I think it's likely that Paul is introducing this in a technical sense in 1 Timothy 3, um, and that not in every case does it need to be used in a technical sense. So there are deacons, and then there are others who are ministers of the gospel to each other. Uh, all Christians are called to be ministers of the gospel, but not all are called to the office of deacon. That has a more narrow set of requirements. Okay? So um, with that being said, then it takes us to verse 11, the other difficulty in wording, uh, where we are told the something likewise must be dignified. Now the question is, does the word here mean women or the wives of the either deacons or elders or both? Uh, who is this group of people? So uh, this, will this will ultimately lead to you saying, uh, either women can serve in the office of deacon, just like men can, uh, because they're here listed with the men in terms of qualification. Or uh, it might lead the church to say something like, actually, if it's the wives of the deacons, then there's not a separate office for women who serve as deacons. Um, but rather, uh, these would be the wives of deacons who kind of come alongside their husbands in the service of the church as deacons. Um, or there's the argument that this is a third office distinct from overseers and deacons, and it's the office of, let's say, a woman's ministry within the church, uh, in which case these women have to meet these certain qualifications. Okay? So in defense of each of those, uh, later in 1 Timothy, uh, ultimately in chapter 5 and 6, Paul lists the qualifications for what we would say are responsible or commendable widows. And so when he lists here the women, likewise must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, that actually maps on pretty well to what he says when he talks about the, wi the widows who are respectable, the ones who kind of meet these qualifications. So perhaps Paul is talking about an office in the church that, that women would kind of uniquely serve in, in the body. It's possible. Um, it's also possible that he's here introducing a category of deacons that are a female class, what we would often call deaconesses, some who serve in that role. Um, for that view is the fact that they introduce the term women here with the same phrase they introduce deacons with. So in verse 8, the deacons likewise must be, and also in verse 11, the women likewise must be. And so that term likewise introduces transitional units of thought. And so it's possible that that's what, what Paul's doing here. The other possibility uh, is, the, is that Paul is doing, as the English Standard Version renders it here, he's introducing the women who are correlated to the deacons who he's just talked about and talking about their qualifications. So we might render that the wives of deacons must be 
and then he lists a set of qualifications. I think the best rendering of this, and there's much discussion we can get into during our small group time, uh, the best rendering of this is dependent on the fact that the listing is very peculiar. And so all of the arguments from the text says this are usually tiebreakers because uh, the, the term deacon is already an unclear term. And so if you were to point to Phoebe, oh, she serves as a deacon in the early church, so therefore women can be deacons. Well, that's hard because the term deacon can also just mean minister. And similarly here, uh, women and wives, th that term could mean either or kind of way. So the exegetical argument kind of ends, grinds you to a halt. And then the question is, okay, what's Paul's flow of thought in 1 Timothy 3? Uh, and the flow of thought seems to be interesting that he would say deacons must meet these qualifications. He lists them. And then he introduces women, only gives three qualifications, a shorter, a shorter list of qualifications, or sorry, four qualifications. And then he circles back to the deacons and then he like kind of lands the plane. That seems disjointed for Paul to do that, considering how he laid out the qualifications for elders. And then he concludes the qualifications for elders by saying uh, their household must be in a certain way. That's in verse four of 1 Timothy three. Uh, and he says their children must, their, ho their household must meet certain requirements. Ultimately their children must meet certain requirements. And so it, it makes sense that he's likely doing something like that here with the deacons as well, where he says the deacons must meet these requirements. Uh, you'll see this in their wives in this way. And also uh, they must be faithful to one wife, like the elders managing their children and their own households well. So he's kind of circling the plane and all of it is talking about one who serves in the office of a deacon and the women would then be the wives of those deacons. They, they have to meet certain requirements, just like the children have to meet certain requirements. So that kind of uh, makes better sense, I think, of the flow of thought, although the exegetical argument, again, is it kind of grinds you to a halt. So I think uh, while there is a, you could probably have 100% confidence that elders can only be men and pastors can only be men, I think you can hold the deacon one with a little bit less certainty. It's a little bit less clear, although I think this, the evidence still favors male-only deacons. But uh, we, I would hold that a little bit more loosely than male-only eldership. And then uh, we, we have to evaluate, okay, what do these wives, what do these women have to be able to do? And you'll notice he addresses the sins of women just like he's done in 1 Timothy chapter 2. He says they must be dignified. We could read respectable, just like the men have to be. But notice this, they must not be slanderers or they must not be gossips. Uh, they must not be those who spread false teaching. And then he dovetails that with uh, they must be sober-minded, meaning they must be like shrewd thinkers. And ultimately, they must be faithful in all things. So they must be trustworthy people who don't, who don't gossip about freely with information. And it probably makes sense why Paul would say, if you're looking to evaluate women in a certain way, here's a way that they might be tempted towards sin, free, f freely flowing with information. And you can evaluate a mature woman by saying she's trustworthy, she does not share information freely, you can go to her things and know that she won't go elsewhere with that information. Here's a woman that would be commendable. And we might say, well, why does he, why does he give the, the wives of deacons these qualifications? It's likely because the ministry of a deacon is very hands-on, very service-based towards the church. And so their wives are going to be very hands-on in that same service role as well. So they need to meet certain standards too. But it's also possible that the wives here, it refers to the wives of both elders and deacons. That's a possibility. So the women who are correlated to the men in both these offices. And then, uh, the, once again in verse 12, we see that the family is the proving grounds for faithful service in the church. The family is the proving grounds. Deacons must be the husband of one wife, meaning they must be faithful, uh, dedicated husbands. They must manage their children and their households well. 
And then ultimately, uh, we, we already know why he's told us that, because as he told the elders, how could, if you can't manage your own household, how are you supposed to manage the household of God? So a deacon must, in the same way, meet all these requirements because, well, this is proven service within the church. So uh, we might ask the question, backing up, why is it that the church needs deacons? In, in what way do the deacons affect the church? So let me introduce that to you, and we'll pick it up a lot more next week. But deacons uh, serve one arm of what the church's mission is, uh, just like the elders serve one arm of what the church's mission is. So when the church is called to be a light to the world, they're to be a light in their talk and ultimately also in their practice. They're to, to speak true things and also to do rightly to their communities, to their neighbors, to, to love one another in speech and also in practice. This is the, the thrust of James, right? Uh, if you say you are a certain way, but you actually don't practice that on the ground, we know that your profession is false. So too with the church. If the church simply speaks true things, but doesn't actually live that truth out into the world, we know that it's a questionable at best profession, but likely a false profession. So it makes good sense that when Paul is establishing the church, he establishes one office for the oversight of the church's doctrine and their instruction so that their words and their profession would be guarded. And then he institutes a second office so that their ministry and their, let's say, hands and feet on the ground, loving of the world and loving of one another would also be guarded. So he puts stewards or sentinels at each of those posts so that the church's witness would be guarded as it goes into the world to preach the gospel faithfully. Lest the church be a bunch of theological airheads uh, and never actually living that out on the ground. Or, I think a, a greater danger in our culture, the church be very good at loving people on the ground with no ability to speak truth or life-giving love into situations where people desperately need the gospel. Both are very important for the mission of the church. And so I think that's why Paul institutes both as he kind of gives his final sign-off to Timothy. So it is with that in mind that we will just close here tonight, put a pin in it, and we'll pick up most of that again next week. So let me close us in a word of prayer. Father, you are our God and King, and we, we want to run your church how you have established her. Uh, would that we would be faithful to your words, and ultimately, Lord, that we would hear carefully what you have for us in the text. Um, particularly the words that are challenging, uh, the words that call us to a high account, such as the need for serving one another and loving one another, uh, and ultimately, Lord, the need to have uh, dignified leaders within the body, not simply those who are willing, uh, but also those who are qualified. We pray that in all this, we would understand your word as good and life-giving and not a burden that is impossible for us to bear. We pray this all in your name. Amen.